Hello and welcome to this episode of the Catnaps podcast with me, Jeremy, just a member of the public, Christy Sanderson, the principal investigator, and John Rogers, another public member of the team. Poor sleep and fatigue are common in acute and emergency healthcare staff, and the COVID-19 pandemic has left many staff stressed and exhausted. This project will explore how fatigue can be managed in the NHS ambulance workforce and the best ways staff can be helped to sleep better. CATNAPS is an NHR-funded study looking to produce an Ambulance Trust national fatigue and risk management system that is acceptable and feasible to improve safety for patients and staff. The purpose of this series of podcasts is to share with listeners news of the progression of the study and hopefully provide an interesting discussion worthy of your time listening. So, Christy, can I ask you first, is there anything you want to say about how the catnap study is going since our last podcast? Yeah, hi, Jeremy. We're in a really exciting phase of the study. So we have opened for recruitment for frontline staff and for patients to be interviewed to tell us all about um, their experiences or awareness of how sleep disruption and fatigue might play out in provision of safe and effective ambulance service care. Um, so we have just started our interviews um, and also very shortly we'll be starting our what we call observational ethnography. We're actually riding out with ambulance crews or sitting with call handlers and dispatchers in the emergency operation centres or the call centres and getting a real on-the-ground feel um, for how their shifts play out. So the duration, um, kind of the intensity, how it works with breaks and anything that kind of might be impacting on fatigue and how we can think about making things better. That sounds a rather challenging experience for you who are doing the interviews to be present at critical events. How does that, how does that feel to you? What do you anticipate? Yeah, it's something we thought really long and hard about. So with our researchers who will be going out with the ambulance crews, so actually riding on the ambulances, our two team members are both paramedics themselves. And that was really important because these are intense clinical environments and it was important to have clinically qualified um, people who are part of that kind of situation. So while they're there as researchers, they're also obviously fully qualified paramedics, so are effectively clinicians on scene if needed. Within our call centres, it's, it's a little bit different because this is true observation where literally we'll have researchers sitting next to the call handler or dispatcher, um, listening in as well, but completely um, passively sort of observing what's happening. So in those roles, the two of us who are doing it, so I'm, I'm going to be doing that as well, are non-clinical. Um, but for us, it's kind of more about we're not used to working 12-hour overnight shifts, so we had to think of a lot about kind of preserving ourselves as well as researchers to make sure we're kind of staying safe while we're doing all of this. In the clinical interviews, how do you manage the boundaries? In the clinical interviews, when in you terms have of you know, when you have a, a, a researcher in a clinical environment, and the instinct is to step in because they can <gasps> oh, see yes, something that's, uh, that's necessary to do again. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're we're really lucky in that ambulance services now are 
very, very sophisticated in their research processes. So they all have observation policies which take into account if there are other clinicians there who are there as researchers first, clinicians second. So they set out the boundaries basically for us and we work within that. So each ambulance service will have one of those policies and we make sure we work within that. And essentially the there is guidance on when a researcher puts on their clinician hat and it will be if there's sort of an extreme situation mm. like there's a sort of mass casualty event or, or whatever it might be. Um, but the protection is there for both sort of the existing clinical team and the researcher to make sure they keep that line clear so that the researchers can act as effective researchers in a clinical environment. I was a bit surprised to learn that call handling staff also work 12-hour shifts. I imagined that they would do the straightforward routine six, seven, eight-hour shifts on a rotating basis. Do we know why call handling staff need to be doing 12-hour shifts? That's an excellent question. And I think <laughs> I'm, I'm going to my, – my get out here is the NHS loves 12-hour shifts. Okay. It is particularly if you're providing a 24-hour service. Operationally, they're easy to organise. You know, the 24-hour day is just divided into 12 and 12. So in terms of thinking about number of staff you need, handover periods, point, points of risk – the smaller the shifts, the more all of that. There's more staff, there's mm. more handover. So they're very – the NHS as a whole is extremely wedded to 12-hour shifts. That's all I can offer. It was probably just where we do 12-hour shifts if mm. we're a 24-hour service. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. And there's been some really creative thinking about how you would restructure schedules to not necessarily have these long 12-hour shifts, which are fatiguing for anyone, even, mm. if you're, even if you're used to it and have been working those shifts for years. I've done 12-hour shifts myself and I know <laughs> I, I know how tiring they can be and also how your sense of judgment diminishes towards the end of the 12-hour shift. <clears throat> um, so where do – John is here with me as members of the public. So where, where do public opinions feature in research? So for us it's a really critical part across the whole research process or pathway – so we want to make sure we are doing research that matters to people and that answers questions that matter to people. So we can have, you know, input from policymakers and senior leaders in the NHS that say these are all the things we need solving. But the other side of that, what are the priorities for people who are using those services, accessing those services, benefiting from those services, or even just the general public's opinion about what is kind of worthy research and what are the real challenges and problems that we need solved. So for us, it's really important to have that input early on in a process to make sure you're asking the right questions in the right way and that you have a ready audience who want to know the answer to your research once you've finished it. Um, so kind of the life cycle of kind of public involvement in research is really important and we try and think about it at all steps of the research process. Has the opinion of... The of the public voice change the direction or the or the content of the study? So when we were writing it, it, it definitely did. So we had a group of ambulance service users who helped shape our very first study we did in sleep and fatigue some years ago now, which I'll get to, is when I first met John, um, 
who firstly endorsed the area as a topic that was of interest to them. We had some very powerful stories of ambulance patients who had seen, for example, a clinician falling asleep in their lounge room while they were waiting for kind of some other other service to, to come on board. So they can clearly see fatigue and its impacts on staff. Um, and this was, this was before COVID, before we had sort of enormous kind of public sympathy for frontline clinicians. They want safe care, but they also know that that's a person in that uniform um, and they want the best for that person who's doing sometimes a very challenging role. So when we were thinking about firstly, is this a problem that patients in the public care about? We've got some really good input that yes, they absolutely do care about this for all sorts of reasons related to the service, but also the person in the uniform. We then also got some kind of really good feedback about what would we want to see changed in the service and our patient input helped us shape outcomes, which is why we had a focus on safety and how fatigue might kind of impact on sort of quality of care and safety. So that was kind of a strong message that we got. We also very strongly got the message that patients and ambulance service users wanted to be a part of this research too, not just advising it, but actually being interviewed so therefore we kind of designed a piece of work where we will talk to patients about their kind of experiences of ambulance care but also kind of their views around the sorts of things we're going to be thinking about changing in terms of to better manage fatigue and basically what the opinion is on that what might they see that might be different and how would they feel about that so it's important to kind of bring everyone with us when we're talking about change in such an important kind of emergency service. Do you think that the influence the public voices had in the design and structure of your project influenced significantly the, the funders' opinion? Absolutely. Yeah. I think um, the National Institute of Health Research who are funding this study have a really, I think, kind of sophisticated an intensive approach to putting the onus on researchers to demonstrate that they've done the groundwork to show that there is public input, involvement and interest in the research that we're doing. So to put it bluntly, you can't get funded now unless you have done that work. And I think that's a really important step because researchers can kind of sit there and think of all the things they might be interested in doing and they could all be scientifically valid questions. But if patients and the public aren't really interested in the answer, it's should we be spending public money on that? It's a question that's important when you're talking about research that could directly improve people's lives. You want to prioritise research that the people themselves are saying, we want this research done. Mm, that's a very interesting answer. Thank you. Uh, coming, coming to John now. John, what were you doing before Christy approached you to help with this study? I was a, a frontline paramedic with a NHS ambulance service then, and I am still now, um, but actually the, the contact with Christy goes back a little bit further. So I had a fatigue-related accident in an ambulance at the end of a night shift. Um, and I was writing a reflection about that. And I contacted Christy and her team on the basis of the sleep spots, not sleep smart study, which uh, Christy mentioned in the, just now in the last podcast, to try and get a bit of background information on what research was out there about fatigue and ambulance services. Um, that led on to when CatNavs became a bit of a vision, Christy approaching me to come and join the team as someone who's got, um, I think the phrase is now a lived experience of 
of fatigue um, in that environment. Right. Um, can you say more about that previous study? Because you were involved in the previous study, did you say? I wasn't involved in it, apart <coughs> from actually being one of those hopefully many people who made a submission on the form that, uh, oh, that Christy okay. analysed. But um, I was trying to find out a bit more um, about what the results were and what the implications were about me and my colleagues um, out there on the road working night shifts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you're in this particular study, you're not just a member of the public here. You, as, as you already indicated, you are also a paramedic. How big a problem is fatigue to paramedics generally and you specifically? I think it's a big problem, um, and it's not an isolated one. I think it connects to a lot of the other issues that are going on for ambulance services at the moment in terms of you know, managing staff well-being and, uh, and health, um, managing patient safety as well, um, and staff morale and retention. Um, so it all links into there. Uh, and I think awareness of it is growing, um, but it's still not there yet. I think there's quite a bit of under-recognition among colleagues. Um, and I can empathise with that because after I had my accident, I, I was reflecting on my own fatigue behaviours um, and the things that I knew indicated I was tired, like rubbing my chin and stretching my arms and yawning and then wanting to wind the window down and turn the radio up. And I thought that was, some of that was pretty unique to me. But then in digging into some of the research, I found out, actually, no, we all do that. Um, and that these are late signs um, and signs by which I should have done something different and we should be doing something different, like stopping, having a rest, having some coffee or whatever it might be. Um, and my realisation was that I was unaware of that and a lot of my colleagues were unaware of it. Um, so there's certainly a need for some sort of education piece for people to become more aware of, of the signs and the potential impact. Um, part of my motivation in getting in touch with Christy, um, and part of my motivation being involved in this project is that I want to do something to raise that awareness. I don't want colleagues to go through, um, and I wasn't going to use a rude word, but awful situation I went through. <laughs> it was horrible um, for so many different reasons. I don't have to go through that. I don't want that risk to the public um, from fatigue-related accidents. So I wrote off an ambulance. I wrote off a car. Um, there were some minor muscular injuries involved, nothing major, thankfully. Um, and I always don't want to underplay the seriousness of the accident, but I want it to be viewed as a near miss because I didn't kill anybody. But I could so easily have done so because fatigue-related accidents can be bad ones because if I was drunk, I'd probably take evasive action. Having a microsleep, I don't, and I didn't. Um, so they can be horrible accidents. So unless these things get looked at in terms of what can we learn from it, what can we draw out to make change, make a difference, whether that's in our behaviours, whether it's in our operational processes, then we're just lining ourselves up for another accident to happen and something more significant than mine. Um, so I might have drifted off from the topic of why it's a big problem, if it is a big problem. Um, um, but I think for those, those reasons, I think it is. Um, and that's why... I'm enthusiastic about the Catnatch project because I see that as a way of making some of that change, which I think really needs to be made. Oh, very interesting. Now, you are, you indicated, you're, you're sensitised to the behaviours that people demonstrate when they are tired and not necessarily aware that they're tired. Are you, uh, you know, in your working life or in, in, your, in your private life, do you see those behaviours going on and recognise that 
they are indicative of fatigue. And <clears throat> I say, I don't notice so much, you know, when I'm driving my own car, because normally I won't be working a night shift before yeah. then, you know. Um, so um, I'm not normally as fatigued driving my car as I would be driving an ambulance at the end of a shift. Um, so, but... I mean, I, in, in, in other colleagues, can you see these these behaviours? Oh, gosh, oh, yes, definitely, yeah. I mean, I think one of the th things in the days after my accident, there's a, I felt a huge sort of outpouring of empathy from colleagues, really, and they were saying, crikey, you know, I've been so close to that myself. I've hit wow. the rumble strips. I found myself stopped in the middle of the road. You know, I've seen my colleague nodding off and had to give him a, a prod. There's a lot of empathy, you know, for that. So people have experienced it, they've seen it, and... You know, colleagues do come to me now and they say about the times that they've been, you know, 70 miles away at a distant hospital having to drive back, you know, and then what they've done to try and keep themselves alert, you know. And some of that's encouraging. Some of it's actually slightly alarming. I think you probably shouldn't have been driving back, really. You know, if it was me, from what I've learned now, I'd have been saying, I can't drive back. I need to find an alternative way of going back because I'm just not safe to do so. So there is that awareness among colleagues of those... Um, so signs of fatigue, but I think the question is how much importance do we attach to them? I didn't attach as much importance to them four or five years ago as I do now because I've got that experience of the accident and I've got that knowledge now from having dug into some of the research papers. It's mostly about you know commercial driving research um, to make me realise that, as I said, my behaviours are not atypical, you know, and they are a late sign and we should be doing something, I should have been doing something before um, uh, immediately those signs kicked in. You've articulated very, very well the, the actual practical, real need for this particular <coughs> research project. Um, I think anybody who ever visits a hospital, any hospital, they see rows and rows and rows of ambulances standing outside Amy waiting to discharge their patients and get back on the road. And I'm wondering that with the delays that ambulance staff have in getting those patients delivered and into the hospital, that obviously is eating into their, into their working time and, cre and creating a level of stress and fatigue even though they're actually not doing a great deal. And... Does that affect their fatigue, do you think? Um, I think it's, it's one of the contributory factors. There's lots of different things that are going to lead to um, us being fatigued, particularly towards the end of a shift. Um, and I say the delays we have at times at hospitals, um, and it still goes on, thankfully not as bad as it was a year ago, um, you know, contribute. I, for me personally, I don't find it particularly tiring sat outside a hospital with a patient. I find it frustrating for the patient because they need to be having their care elsewhere. Um, the issue comes in that if you're stuck there and you know the handover delays are so many hours and your shift finishes in an hour's time, you know you're going to be potentially late off. Um, although mm -hmm. our liaison officers do a fantastic job of trying to swap ambulances over, it creates a logistical headache for the ambulance service to try and get crews off on time. Um, and I think that underlying sense that here comes another time I'm going to be late off, that's more of a subliminal pressure, really, rather than the extended patient care. Uh, we're used to doing patient care. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, not, it's not a great big issue. Um, but people are generally focused on what is going to make them late off. 
And, and this is why, if for me, it comes back to, you know, one of the things we need to change is some of our operational processes, the systems which help potentially protect ambulance clinicians from being laid off. Because in the absence of that, or if they're seen to be ineffective, then my colleagues quite understandably will try and protect themselves from not being laid off. And they will think about, well, what strategies can I do to make sure I'm not going to be late? You know, I'll save that refueling so I can be out of service for refueling. Um, I'll save that restocking so I can be out of service for restocking to get myself into my last half hour and I'm less likely to get a job, that sort of thing. And that's completely understandable, um, especially when our systems don't at the moment provide that confidence that they're going to stop us being laid off. So that's why I'm an advocate for one aspect of trying to mitigate fatigue is to look at the operational processes that we op that we work with um, to try and get them to the point that my colleagues and myself can trust them to protect us. Um, and that also links anything to a, a, a culture of an organisation as well. Um, I think it's quite a bit of work to do in... And my trust is, is doing that, but really developing a more positive culture, but it's still a long way to go. But one where there's a trust that the system and that the higher powers are working towards managing staff well-being and trying to mitigate from late finishes and, and the pressures that come from that. Ambulance crews, there's two of, of them, generally speaking. Can both members of the crew drive the drive the ambulance uh yes yeah that, ah. the usual plan would be we, we've, got, we've got two clinicians both drivers and both can attend patients i mean there's difficult clinical grades in terms of you know how appropriate it is for a yeah. person to attend the patient but both should be able to drive so yes. if one is more tired than the other the, the other person mm. can can drive you could say oh yeah I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, i'd rather you drove absolutely i think that's one of my advocacies to my colleagues is to say you know um you know if you're driving late back at the end of an night shift you know swap over even if you don't feel tired every half hour at least because mm -hmm. the research would say that that's when these fatigue behaviors start kicking in um and again i suppose one of the cultural bits is getting over that sort of bravado but no i'm okay i can drive you know and for someone more junior less experienced to have that confidence to be able to say to a more experienced colleague saying no can i take over the driving for a bit or could you take over the driving for a bit um i think Probably we need to want to get rid of some of this. Um, uh, okay, bravado is probably the best word for it yeah. at the moment, and it's it, it's we need to be, I suppose, a little bit more humble and realistic about the risks and our willingness to do something to to mitigate against it by sharing the driving a bit more regularly. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So, what are you hoping is going to change in the working life of paramedics, John, as a result of this study? Um. I think in the in the in the in the bigger picture, if we if we get to the point where uh, people are, are less fatigued and therefore they're they're healthier and they're feeling happier, is we're going to do a lot to improve staff morale, staff well-being, and retention. Um, and underlying that would be you know shift patterns which are more appropriate for individuals. I mean, we're all we're all different. So I'm a morning person like being out about in the early part of the day. I don't like being out and about in the late part of the day, but I've got colleagues who love nighttime. And there's some people who just thrive on doing night shifts. I think find that completely weird, but there are people, <laughs> there are people who, who enjoy it. Now, we can't, I can't foresee a system where everybody's individual personal preferences or 
circadian rhythm is going to be perfectly attuned into a rotor, you know. Um, but we can potentially get somewhere towards that. Um, that's basically part of my hope. You know, a more flexible system, so um, our shift patterns more tuned in, in, into one needs. And I think regularity is quite important as well, you know, um, or more importantly, predictability. So I've been working on a very predictable line of shifts. I have a four-week cycle, and I have three busy weeks, and I have eight days off, and I know exactly what days I'm going to be working on. I could map it out for a year, exactly what I was going to be doing, so I could plan around it. So it was, to use a bit of clinical parlance, it was regularly irregular, <laughs> yep, um, like some funny heart rhythms. But some of my colleagues work on relief rotors, and they're sort of filling the gaps in between, and their rhythm is irregularly irregular, um, and it's hard for them to plan. It's hard for them to get into a rhythm for their sleeping patterns. It's hard for them to plan their social and their family life. So I suppose another part of my hope would be there's something around safe management of relief shifts um, so that we reduce that cause of unnecessary fatigue amongst our colleagues. Um, and then I suppose also it's getting that balance between staff safety and patient safety i think we're very good in the ambulance service at being quite rightly interested in and accountable for the safety of the patients that we that we encounter and that we, and we deal with i think we've got a little bit of work to do to address that balance between staff safety and patient safety um because we've got to keep our staff safe to be able to manage the patients safely and also to keep those staff and that experience to be able to continue to manage our patients safely um, I think it's suddenly slightly skewed one way at the moment. It's skewed mm -hmm. towards patient safety at the moment, and we're sort of doing a bit of, I was about to say ignoring, but that's too harsh a word. You know, we're, we're not taking enough account of our, our, our staff safety. Mm. So we've got to address that balance a bit as well. Mm. Have you spoken with any of your colleagues about the study and your involvement? And if so, what did they say? And if not, what stopped you? Um, nothing has stopped me. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not being shy of talking about it, and um, I, I sometimes wonder whether you know the colleagues raise their eyebrows and say, "Oh God, he's on about it again," you know, and, and oh, you're shift with John. He's, gonna, he's bound to tell you about fatigue or stuff like that. Um, but I felt very strongly that that I need to share it. Um, just to give you a bit of context, one of my stranger or bizarre, or I feel bizarre reactions to my accident was embarrassment. Um, Previous to this in my working life, I'm in my 50s and a lot of other stuff beforehand, um, I was the person responsible for managing safety within my organisation. I know that was doing overseas expeditions, whether it was outdoor pursuits, whether it was running a, a residential centre. You know, I was a safe person. You know, I looked at our incidents and saw what we could learn from them and try to make things safer but still practical. The accidents didn't happen to me. They happened to other people. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, one had happened to me. Um, I thought, ooh, you know, what if my past colleagues hear about this? You know, that's going to be a bit embarrassing. But then I realised that I've got that experience in managing risk, which should allow me to utilise that within my ambulance context to try and push forward some of that change. And I felt a responsibility to do that. And it's all a bit of passion about it. Here's some good that can come out of this, is that I can try and be a force for change um and some of that's been quite easy to do so talking to colleagues has been very easy to do um managed to do some sort of um 
fatigue awareness learning materials and that's been quite easy to do um some of the harder things to do is to try and is trying to promote and encourage some of that organizational change because i think that's just an impact of being a part of a big monolithic organization you know and and change is always challenging for various reasons and so trying to get those systemic changes in is being, being quite difficult as for talking to staff I've, I've been my colleagues i've been very happy you know uh, to talk to them um very happy to talk on here very happy to talk in other contexts because if that can go at least some step of the way to either increasing awareness of fatigue so some individual out there i should think right, i'm not going to do that again i'm not going to drive that long way back from a night shift again I'm stuck at such and such hospital. Or that if someone higher up in an organization is going to say, all right, okay, all this talk I'm hearing about fatigue, you know, yeah, we do need to do something about it because, again, one thing that angles I put it to my higher powers in my organization was I, I don't want the HSE to come to our organization and say, you had an accident two years ago like that before. What did you learn from it? Mm-hmm. You know, and for us to be embarrassed and say, well, we didn't learn very much. Um, so if there's people in ambulance service m- management, the, the movers and shakers there who, who go, if that makes them think, oh, Mikey, yes, we need to do something about this, then that's a good thing. So any, anything which is going to push it in that direction, I'm happy for, and therefore I'm happy to talk about it. It's really good that you're doing this to uh, talking to your colleagues because coming back to what Christy was saying about doing the staff interviews, I think you're, you're, you're preparing staff to be interviewed. So uh, what do you perceive to be the impact of shift work and disruptive sleep patterns upon real life? I mean, for how many years have you worked shifts and how different would your quality of life be if your working pattern had been regular hours? Um, I've never really worked a nine-to-five existence. Mm -hmm. Um, I did watchkeeping on ships, but that's not quite the same as shift work. So I think... um, Shift work was really coming to the ambulance service. That's my first proper experience of it, really. Um, I think, you know, I came in with my eyes open. I knew I was going to be doing it, and I knew there'd probably be a challenge. I'd never really done 12-hour night shifts before, um, not consistently anyway. I'd done a couple as a volunteer when I was volunteering with London Ambulance. Um, And I think the impact of it is going to vary, again, on, on the different people and their lifestyle. So for me, the challenge is I'm a light sleeper, I find it very hard to sleep in daylight. I put that back to having lived on ships which don't get dark inside, or just so they don't get light when the lights are off, they're very dark. Um, so I'm easily disturbed. So I could not sustain a long pattern of night shifts because my body wouldn't do it. A couple at a time I could do, but co- other colleagues can. Um, again, there's, you know, what's my own sort of personal setup? You know, have you got young children that are going to be making a noise? Have you got noisy neighbours? Have you got other commitments like, you know, childcare and school runs and things like that? So every different person is going to have a different level of impact on their routine, which is going to affect their ability to manage a shift pattern, particularly if it's including night shifts. Um, so I think the, the impacts on people are going to be quite widespread. But some of the common ones are going to be in the research, I believe, is out there saying actually lots of health issues come from shift working, particularly night shifts. I've not noticed any myself. I might in 10 years' time think, well, crikey, maybe that's because I was doing shift work. I don't know. Um and I think it's like that general sort of disruption that comes from it. Um, but I think it's something we 
for me, I knew what I was getting into, so I sort of feel that sense of responsibility for me to adapt to it. Um, but I wouldn't want that to be the get-out clause for an organisation to not do anything about it, shift patterns. Um, so I think there's a, there's a, it's, it's almost like two, if you're in, in coming from two different directions. I've got to do something to manage my own fatigue, but my organisation also needs to do something to manage the environment in which they're expecting me to work try and keep me safe as well do you think over, I mean, you, you said that you're in your six in your 50s 50s now. 50s yeah. you, you're in 50s almost in my 60s I'm well into my 60s do you think that somebody joining the ambulance service in their 20s um, becomes more aware <laughs> over the years as, as to as to the impact of sleep patterns have you noticed yourself that over the years it's, it's become easier to do shift patterns or shift work or more difficult or no, no difference at all? You know, that's, that's a hard one to answer really because I've not worked um, the same shift patterns. So mm. whether I can say I found it easier because I started off doing mixture of nights and days. Um, the shift pattern I've just come up with, I've just sort of slightly changed roles. I did no night shifts. My shifts finished last, latest ones finished at 9.30. It was the nicest line, as we call it, in ambulance service, I think, in, in, in my trust, and I felt a bit guilty about having it. Um, so it's hard to say hmm. I've, whether I've I got used to it because I'm just getting used to shifts or I've got used to it because actually I've got an easier line, you mm -hmm. know, and it's a, it's a more sociable and more, you know, um, friendly one to work. That's a hard one to answer, really. Okay. If you had the choice, would you choose regular hours? And do you think there are paramedics who can't cope with the sh the, uh, sh the shift system? Um, starting with the latter one, I I, I don't know. I, I doubt it. I think it, it's it's what shift pattern works mm -hmm. for an individual is more Im important. So they're going to be able to cope with the shift pattern no matter what. And hopefully most people came to it again with their eyes open. Um, as far as regularity i don't think regularity as i said earlier is, is important is as important as predictability you know to be able to know what your shift pattern is going to be over a period of time so you can either plan your life around it and you can organize your sleep routine around it um i like a bit of variety in my life and i say that's why i've never really liked a nine to five role um i want a bit of difference but not so much difference that it messes me up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if you could sponsor a research question, what would it be? This is another tricky one, really. Um, and part of me thinks I should have had some answer that off the top of my head, you know, something that I really want to get sorted out. And I suppose one thing I would be ex well, a thing, not one thing, there would be many things I'd be excited about, but one thing I would be excited about, if there's a way of researching it, relates into organisational culture and what are the barriers and how can we develop a culture where there's an innate openness and trust where the systems that are put in place, that people have that confidence to know that they are designed as best they can to serve not only the, so the purpose of the end users, say in our case, our patients, but also with the well-being of staff in mind. Because um, if you don't have that culture, or if you have one more opposite to that, then you've got this sort of antagonism, um, which 
means that if you do get like a new initiative comes in, then, then there can be a suspicion about it. So I think one of the sometimes our barriers to some of our research is that people are suspicious of the system and they won't necessarily delve in fully with open arms into having a go at a particular trial or a particular process to see if it makes a change and then you don't get the good data that you need. Yes. Um, and linked in with that as well, I think if you've got an openness, then we, again, one of the issues is we don't, people don't feel confident in being able to report near misses or fatigue related incidents. So if we can have a culture where that's easy for people to do, mm -hmm. where they feel they're not going to get a repercussion, then we get the data that we need to be able to say this is an issue, um, therefore we need to do something about it and get the funding, whatever it might be. You know, you, you refer to suspicion and uh, that leads quite neatly into my next question, which is sometimes change is hard for people to accept. So does does that reflect about change being hard to accept and the suspicion of change to produce any sort of insights from you? Um, yeah, I've always been involved in some way in doing problems for change management, I think, or having ideas for change. Um, but I think it can be a really hard one because it's it, it can it can touch on people's vulnerabilities or their fears about you know my job. Uh, you know, is this the first of many changes and what have I been doing wrong so far if we've got to change this now? And so any change needs to be, in my book, informed by an organisation that's got a vision. If you haven't got the vision, what are you organising the change for? And it has to be dealt with really sensitively. It's got to be openness, communication, more communication, consultation, transparency. Because um, the environment of change is one where rumor is a really bad thing you know mm. so rumor needs to be curtailed by openness and transparency um, what does your next working day look like uh tomorrow um i'm going to be on an urgent care car because i've just had a bit of a role change with the ambulance service so i don't do emergency ambulances anymore i do urgent care cars um so i'll be out for 10 hours from 6 30 in the morning with a colleague um and we'll be trying to Manage that uh, those patients who hopefully don't need an emergency department attendance, but we can we can manage them on scene with more medications, with a, a different skill set, um, and an array of different pathways that might hopefully avoid them having to go to the hospital. Oh, I'm glad you explained what an urgent care car was, because I, <laughs> I had this vision of, a, of, an, ele of an electric car breaking down and going out to repair it. What questions haven't I asked that you wish I had? Um. They don't have don't to. know. I haven't got <laughs> one again. I'm talking about no, I haven't. No, I've, um, no, I don't have one, I don't think. Okay, well, can I bring Christy back in here now? Christy, what, what, what thoughts do you have now? So that was absolutely fantastic to hear John sort of talk again about his story and his experience, how he's kind of thinking about this project and its potential. I really like this focus on organisational change. We're going some of the way along that in our project in that the first two bits of work we did were all about why do the ambulance services do the things the way they do? What is the potential for doing things differently in terms of all these different options we have to sort of improve sleep quality and fatigue management? So we've got some really rich data on why organisations don't change. Um, so once we've 
finished our interviews and observations, the final piece of work we're doing is working out how to bring all of this information together to design some tools and guidance for trust to help them make the steps to make that change because we know that's the hardest thing. You can have all the guidelines and policies in the world but if it looks different to what's done usually, if it feels different, if people are not convinced about why you're doing it, it will be very, very difficult to make those changes and to make sustainable change. So our last bit of work we're doing, I'm just feeling really excited and renewed about that piece of work just in terms of how significant it will be. I'm so pleased you're doing this because in my working life, and I've had loads of different jobs, I've noticed so often how reluctant employers are to to implement necessary change. And I really, really hope that uh, the Ambulance Trust will listen. But this has been really interesting, John and Christy. Thank you so much for this. But as the net curtains of time stop twitching and the rumour mill of destiny runs out of gossip, I notice our time is now up. The next podcast, we will be interviewing another team member and learning how the study is making progress. So if anyone listening wishes to know more about the study, details can be found on the NIHR Applied Research Collaboration website and on the UEA website. But if you just Google CatLab study, Christy Sanderson, you will find it. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>